Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, LRT could be back on the rails. Hamilton's General Issues Committee voted 9-6 to to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx. We'll talk about the ramifications of that vote. Green Party leader Anna May Paul fired back against critics of her leadership. She accuses some Green Party executive members of racist and sexist accusations. What's next for the Green Party? Good question. And the Ontario government announced that they will add more land to the Green Belt. Sounds like great news, but there's more here than meets the eye. Steve Bust of the Hamilton Spectator joins us to explain. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get right down to it. Uh, Hamilton's uh, General Issues Committee yesterday by a vote of 9 to 6 agreed to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx regarding the 14-kilometer LRT line from McMaster University to Eastgate Square. Uh, a couple of the headlines I've seen today says, well, it's all done. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but uh, let's talk about exactly what the ramifications of this vote are yesterday. By the way, as with every other vote at uh, General Issues Committee, it still has to be ratified by the council, which is essentially the same people, but uh, let's talk about that. Uh, one of those who voted in favor is Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to start things off today. Uh, Lloyd, thanks for the time. Glad to have you with us again. Well, thanks for having me on to explain my amendment. Well, let, yeah, let me, uh, a little history here. Uh, the first time I even got a, a discussion on this program about LRT was years and years ago. It seems like 100 years ago, Lloyd, uh, when you and a couple of your colleagues came into the studio and told me about having uh, seen LRTs in action in other cities, and you were pretty excited and said, this is this is fabulous, this is the future. You were on side for the longest time. You became skeptical as time went on, but you voted for it yesterday. So let's talk about that. Okay, so uh, I was going to have a real difficult time to vote against a $3.4 billion investment from senior levels of government in the city. But at the same time, I thought it was important since the suburban areas or even the mountain got no benefit from it. I know why the residents in Ancaster will see no benefit because they, um, if they work downtown, they still got to come down. There's no place to park your car at McMaster University, so they come right downtown. And quite frankly, it's going to make it inconvenient for them to get home because of the King Street virtual closure. It's going to be one lane westbound afterwards. But I still had trouble down, turning down $3.4 billion. So I come up with an amendment to find the operating costs and uh, to make sure that uh, there's no tax load added to um, the taxpayers as a result of this. And essentially, through the Rapid Ready Report and working with staff, we found a solution where uh, the Rapid Ready Report identified way back in 2013 that 18, if we got a, uh, LRT, 18 buses would come off the what we know now as the B line and the uh, King Delaware line. Uh, 70% of the buses in the King Delaware and 100% of the buses on the LRT line. And so um, it made sense because why would you run a dual system? You have an LRT train, which everybody would want to take because it's shiny and new and a train that's faster. And, and so why would we continue to run buses side by side? And if we remove those 29 buses off those two routes, we're not taking transit off any other route other than those in the area of the LRT where the LRT will replace it. It brings the operating cost down from $20 million to $6.4 million. And, uh, you know, which is far more palatable than $20 million. And uh, I'm not sure why some skeptics are saying that we're, we're going to shut down routes in other areas, but that's just not correct. 
It was identified, as I said in the Robert Ritter report, as the uh, 30% of the buses on the King Delaware. There will still be 70% of them there. It's the ones that run along King Street that will be replaced with the LRT. And, of course, there's a lot of questions around that, but our HR staff will have to work through how they um, accommodate that. Uh, and they're coming back with a re-envisioning report in the fall for, quite frankly, the whole city. And so that brought the operating cost down to $6.5 million. And then in, on top of that, uh, for development downtown, developers get a 40% reduction in development charges. And if we're going to make uh, senior levels of government are going to make a $3.4 billion investment in an advanced form of transit, then they shouldn't need these incentives anymore. And this is an instant uh, uptake uh, as a result of the LRT. So uh, I suggested that in the next review of the uh, um, our, our development charges bylaw, which comes up in 2024, that we get rid of that 40% reduction. Every, but nobody else in the whole city has this reduction. And the reason it was done originally was to encourage investment back into the downtown. But now we're going to have this, this high-order transit system that will encourage it. And every one of those developers lobbied for the, uh, the uh, LRT. That picks us up $8 million. And in addition to that, there's the uh, downtown tax relief where someone builds a, a, a facility, a building, a condo downtown, they would get uh, a 10-year phase-in of the taxes. And so why do they need that incentive also? That was done for the same reason, to encourage development. But with the LRT, they shouldn't need that anymore. That's another 0.9. So essentially, we're, we're, if we're saving $8.9 million in development charges and the tax um, uh, uptick, if you will, and, and so the net result is to operate and maintain the uh, uh, LRT will actually result in $2.4 million in savings. Because if it's going to cost 6.5, but we have the other savings of these two I talked about of 8.9 million, that's a savings of, of uh, uh, a net savings total for the operation and maintenance of $2.4 million. That made it more palatable for me. It means it won't impact my community or any other community. In fact, the whole city taxpayers won't be affected by this because we we found that revenue in other areas other than raising taxes. So that's really it in a nutshell, Bill. I, you know, I know I, I saw the, some of the accusations on social media too when you presented that motion a little while ago. You know, that, are you going to take buses away from everybody? And that that wasn't the case at all. I understand the clarification, uh, but also I had this picture in my mind's eye: if, if people that wanted to maintain those buses on King Street, you've only got one lane of traffic now. And if you're going to have a bus that's going to stop every two or three blocks, uh, whatever traffic is on there, you're going to have a bunch of unhappy campers. This only it's common sense to do what you you suggested here. Well, yeah, and, but some members of the meeting, and I think you're having one on next, talk about other transit areas that we're, we're re reducing, and that's not correct. It's only in the area of the LRT. And in my view, it would be ridiculous to have them run together, and you're absolutely right. I mean, King Street's going to become one lane westbound for, uh, in the areas for people going to Ancaster. It would be reduced similarly down in the Queenston uh, Road area. And you get a bus stopping every 250 meters. That backs everything up behind them. And you got garbage trucks. It it just won't be it, it won't be practical for the motors that's going to have very limited capacity to go down King Street after this thing is built. Okay, so, so let me ask you about this because this, those amendments and that seemed to sway at least one or two other councillors who seem to be on the fence on this. Uh, it goes to City Council next for ratification. It's the same people essentially that voted on this, so I'm going to assume that the vote is going to be the same. Uh, the next step, I guess, is is you when that. M 
a memorandum comes back, the MOU comes back, you're going to have to vote on that too, aren't you? We are, but uh, you know what I'll be watching for in the MOU is is what impact, impact uh, members of council and myself included can have on traffic congestion. I, I'm still very concerned about people will get into downtown Hamilton fine from Ancaster, come down the 403 and up Main Street, but going home is going to be a problem because King Street will become one lane westbound under the current layout. And and so you could go up to um, York Boulevard or up to Cannon Street, come across Cannon, but typically you would come down Queen, and then you're going to run into that problem again with only one lane westbound. You could try Dundurn, but it's also going to be congested, and it's somewhat of a residential area. So I need a solution uh, to how people going west on on King Street can get to the 403. Now, some people suggested, well, we'll convert Maine to two-way. But there's no ramp to westbound 403 off Main Street yeah. either. And that's I've been working for seven years to get a westbound ramp off Mohawk Road in Ancaster. I can't imagine with that basket weave that's in there, we would get a quick solution from the MTO on putting a westbound ramp off Main Street. No, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, lots more to come on this in the days and weeks ahead, Lloyd. I appreciate you jumping on today for a few minutes to explain this. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. And Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's uh, some differing points of view on this uh, around the community, and uh, even the vote yesterday certainly wasn't unanimous, 9 to 6. Uh, and a number of people around the community are still very skeptical about this. I want to bring John Best, uh, the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, who's been following this story, well, since day one. Uh, John, welcome back to the program. Uh, first up, were you surprised by the vote yesterday? Not at all, Bill. I, I think the... Um Really, uh, this this thing probably got um, uh, on a path towards uh, becoming reality, uh, dating back to shortly after it was canceled. Uh, within within two months of that, they'd put together a, a committee to uh, to provide the government with uh, with some solutions that obviously were going to be something other than cancellation. And then, of course, the big one was when uh, Catherine McKenna came in with her 1.7 billion. Uh, that you know, you just heard Lloyd. Uh, let's you know, it's it's tough to, even though there are people that still believe there's only one taxpayer. There's there's still that sense that uh, if it's coming from another level of government, that somehow that's free money. So no, I I mean there there was there's clearly been some very very heavy lobbying that went on here and uh, so we are where we are. Is the debate over? Well, I I don't think the debate I guess it depends on who's doing the debating. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a media standpoint, I think our responsibility is to continue to uh provide as much background and as much information as possible to the public. Uh you know, we're not here to uh you know, driving outcomes—that's uh, that's for the politicians. Uh, they have the uh, the power and they have the access to money. But there's all kinds of questions about this project. Um, not the least of which is, uh, again, uh, if you saw the Spectator this morning, Catherine McKenna, uh, the great Hamiltonian, uh, weighing in on that there's that there's she's saying uh, more affordable housing along the LRT corridor is a condition of federal funding. So I've already fired off uh, a question to her office. Uh, how much affordable housing would be a minimum threshold? Is the minister talking affordable housing or social housing? Because if you're talking affordable housing, the current definition uh, is 125% or less of the average market price 
And if you're talking Hamilton, you're you're looking at fifteen hundred bucks for a studio. Mm-hmm. So that's that qualifies as affordable housing. Uh, who's going to pay for the affordable housing? I asked. Well, any of the one point seven billion proposed by either Ontario or Infrastructure uh, Canada be expected to be used for this purpose? Um, it'll be interesting to get an answer to that. And then how is this so-called condition going to be monitored or, or, or enforced? Is it is it going to be written into the MOU that Hamilton will be signing? So, uh, you know, th- those are some of the questions. And, and, and what I've sort of found, and we, we also saw with the downtown precinct bill, that uh, politicians seem to have learned that they can promote even the most inappropriate spending projects by inserting the words affordable housing. And uh, some of the bloggers have pointed out, in the case of the downtown precinct, uh, you know, we might be talking about two dozen affordable units. And then you go back to the other issue, how do you define affordable? And it, it may not be that affordable and uh, for people that are, that are actually uh, struggling financially. Yeah, and I know that may sound like some people are parsing words, but I mean, you know, there's affordable and then there's affordable. I mean, there are people that are homeless right now. Uh, there are people that, uh, you know, are, are on fixed incomes. There's a lot going on here. Uh, you could also, these days, John, make an argument that uh, housing's not very affordable for too many people at all now, simply because of the way the prices have gone up in the last year and a half. So, you know, it's it's a rather loose definition. The other well, element, that, and the question about that is, uh, at what point is that housing going to be built? Is it going to be built, are they going to monitor this as they're building the the, the, the LRT? Is it going to come five years after, ten years after? We don't know at this stage, do we? We don't know any. We don't know much of anything about this. But you know, you throw in the word affordable housing, and that in Hamilton appears to be enough to win over those who purport to speak for the the poor and the marginalized. Uh, you know, I mean, this thing, to my mind, if you if you actually, uh, you know, we got uh, two or three members on council that are constantly talking about marginalized people. To me, this project will only serve to gentrify the poorest parts of our city and drive more and more people away and uh you know it, it's not just it's not just people that are that are on social assistance and uh you know th- uh, those kind of supports i mean we're building a whole underclass of people that are simply not going to be able to afford to get into the housing market uh these will be uh working what we used to call working poor um, you know, it's it's going to be. There's really a, a major housing crisis looming, Bill. And uh, I know we're a little off topic, but uh, since uh, you know affordable housing was introduced by the minister, I think it's it's fair to discuss it. Let me ask you. I, I got a minute left here, but I got a. I want a prediction from you here. Uh, a very controversial subject. Nine to six vote. There are some people that are just dead set against this on council, and, and they're not going to be swayed. Uh, and I, I was hearkening back, uh, actually, to Cap- Lloyd Ferguson's brother, Murray, uh, who was on Ancaster Council around 2000 during amalgamation. And Murray was dead set against it. I mean, vocal against it. This is the worst possible thing the government could do. Uh, it, it was forced on us anyway, as we know. And, and, and he was elected to this new council. And he told me, he says, I think it sucks. I think it's the wrong thing to do. But it's now my job to make it work. Uh, you know, and that, that's what I'm going to do. And I think Brad Clark made a, a comment similar to that uh, at the meeting yesterday as well. Uh, are the people that are opposed to this simply going to say, okay, it's over? I, I'm sorry we lost that, but it's over? Or is this fight going to continue? I, I think there's a certain inevitability built into the project now, and we are going to have to make it work. Um, uh, the only issue, I think, is um, 
how much money it's going to cost because to really make this work, they're going to have to out- out- roll out the blast system. And uh, that, that was going to be reliant on a certain amount of money from senior governments. And, uh, you know, so we're in for $3.4 billion. We, we really, if they want this thing to succeed, they have to roll out the blast system. And, and that's extra money. Uh, that's the, uh, the big uh, garage for all the buses and, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, there will be a point, I mean, uh, where we have to do whatever we have to do to make LRT work. And uh, it's good just to involve a lot more money, and uh, somebody's going to pay for it down the road. John Best at the Bay Observer. As always, John, thanks for this. Great talking with you again today. You're welcome, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we don't know when the next federal election is going to be. All kinds of speculation about that. And, uh, well, the prime minister's in a lot of people's crosshairs because he's the prime minister and did a lot of criticizing. But I can't remember a time where the opposition leaders have been under so much scrutiny as they have been in the last little while. McLean's Magazine uh, this week talks about uh, Aaron O'Toole's problems in trying to corral his uh, conservative party with all the elements that are involved in that. He talked about a big blue tent, you may remember, when he first uh, took over the leadership. Uh, there's an argument to be made that that hasn't happened. As a matter of fact, there seem to be more fractures in that. And then, of course, there's the Green Party. And we told you about that story yesterday. There was a, a move afoot within the Green Party executive, it seemed anyway, to try to oust uh, relatively newly elected leader Anime Paul. Well, a defiant Anime Paul is firing back against those critics of her leadership. Uh, at a late-day news conference yesterday, she called out party executives who sought to oust her. She even blamed the prime minister for creating turmoil in the Green Party. How many times will we allow Justin Trudeau to get away with pushing strong, competent, capable women out of politics when they are seeking to serve? And how much longer will we allow him to do it with impunity? Today, I am here to say that I am one woman that he will not push out of politics, and he can believe it. Uh, uh, so it was obviously the uh, former Green Party member who is uh, staying in politics, too, who crossed the floor and left the Green Party and joined the Liberal Party. Uh, some are suggesting, and I've seen some of the comments already, that, well, there she is blaming everybody but herself for the problems that are going on here. So let's try to sift through uh, some of the rhetoric here and find out what is happening, what it's going to mean to the political landscape here. Uh, glad to welcome back to the program Richard Brennan, former journalist uh, for the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, thanks so much for the time today again, Badger. Uh, Enemy Paul, uh, almost, almost, I guess, uh, getting booted out. Uh, Aaron O'Toole having some problems. What's going on here? I mean, even if you want to go back a little bit to Andrew Scheer, uh, when he took over the conservative leadership, uh, he didn't get much of a shot at it, really, did he? No, I, this is uh, so fractious. And, and this one with the enemy Paul, I, I don't think we've seen such a, a public gutting of a political party like this in quite some time. I mean, I know the uh, conservatives have some issues, but this is this is something else. I mean, allegations of racism and sexism, and and you know, it's it's this is all you know, this is all in the public. And at a time when I thought, in my mind at least, that you know the Green Party was gaining some traction in Canada. You know, people were starting to look at them. As, as you know, as an alternative to the big three, but uh, now it just seems to be imploding, and and God knows why. I, I, I quite frankly, I th- just as an observer looking in, it seems to me that people have a little trouble with it, you know, 
with a, a well-intentioned and strong-willed woman wanting to lead her party. I, th- I think a lot of that has to do with that. Misogyny. And, yeah, yeah. It's just, in this day and age, to, to think that that can happen, but it is. I, I'm sure this is playing a part in it, Not whether it's a whole part that should be debated. But this this is a woman that wants to lead her party. She wants to lead it the way she wants to, and uh, you know, you know, God bless her. I mean, there's a lot of times you find, Bill, that there's people who are so used, to, you know, council members as they call themselves or or, or uh, executive members, they're so used to running the show that when somebody comes along that says doesn't agree with them on everything. Well, they get their back up in, in this case, and I think this is a perfect example. I want, I want to go back to your first point, though, because it, it's something I think that we need to discuss, and, and it's some, something that some people feel uncomfortable talking about, but I think you have to, because uh, you're absolutely right. And this is not unique to, to the Green Party. It's not unique to Canadian politics. I mean, we saw this when Hillary Clinton ran for president a few years ago. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a segment of the population, and certainly a segment in the political world, that are not comfortable with strong women, that, that assert themselves and show leadership qualities. And, and that's unfortunate. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but there seems to be enough of them to still cause problems in situations like this. And you know, in the 21st century, you'd like to think we've put that behind us, but clearly we haven't. Well, yeah, you would think so. I mean, where have these people been? Have they not worked with the, you know, with strong women? I certainly did the uh, Toronto Star, and you know, and I learned from these strong women, and I didn't resent the fact that they had a mind of their own. And to think that somebody in this day and age can't deal with that is, is I don't know, just so appalling in my mind. But again, I don't think that's all of it. I, I, there's, you know, there's, there's more to it that, of course, you know, some of the things that we're not seeing. But these, you know, at least the two, the two remaining members have taken her side, taken Annie Paul's side, and said, you know, she, she's doing what she has to. You know, and uh, she's she's a leader. Uh, but as an aside, why she's running in Toronto Centre is beyond me. But that's another story. Well, yeah, I mean, let's face it. When you get elected as a party leader, uh, job one should be to get a seat in the Commons. And I know Jagmeet Singh took an awfully long time to do that. And there's all sorts of speculation where he was going to run, including at one point they were thinking in Hamilton. But he, he ended up in British Columbia, finally won the election, not by a very wide margin. But he's there. And he's a player in the Daily House of Commons question period, whatever, such as it is anyway. And she's uh, not. She, she, well, she, and she's not. Yeah, and, and you talk to anybody that says, look, at, she's going to try to unseat Marcy Ian, who beat her in the by-election just a little while ago. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not one to just start predicting in elections, but that's a very, very uh, precarious riding to be going in to say, I'm going to be the upset winner in a situation like that. Well, the liberals uh, have held it since 1996. Yeah. So, I mean, why would, why would you be cannon fodder? I don't understand that. And I, I never understood it with Singh, and I, and I don't understand it now, why you would want to run in a riding where you know your chances are, you know, a snowball's chance in Florida. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. So it just, it, it's a culmination of things, Bill, with this party right now. It, it's just, it's fractious. You know, people yelling and screaming at each other and saying, you know, you're a racist, you're a sexist, and, and they're saying, well, you just won't listen to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, this does not sound good, and it just is, it isn't good for the party. 
to repeat myself, a party I thought was gaining some traction. Does this go all the way back to that leadership race to replace Elizabeth so. May? I mean, it, she won on the eighth ballot, fifty-four uh, percent of the vote. Uh, she says that's a strong mandate. I guess we could debate whether those numbers indicate that it is or it isn't. But she won, and and I'm I'm getting the feeling that there are some people within the party uh, that were never comfortable with that. Well, that isn't a strong mandate. You're on the eighth ballot, and you get and you get that. I mean, come on, uh, you, you know, you can you know, call it what you like, but that's not that's not a strong mandate by any stretch of the imagination. So there's insurrection in the ranks then? Oh, yeah, because you've got people who didn't vote for her and, and had no intentions of her getting in for what, whatever reason they might have had. And, and now she's in. 54% is not strong. Let's face it. You can, you can call it what you want. But, you know, the fact is, the fact remains that she is the leader. And you, you better get behind her if you hope to go anywhere in terms of getting more seats in the House of Commons. If you don't, if you, if you, you know, uh, stab each other in the back, we've seen this show before in other parties, you stab each other in the back, where does that go? It goes nowhere. And this is, this is the party, you know, the, the workers, these are the, the party executives. I mean, there's, as you mentioned, there's only three members in their caucus, so it's not as if there's a caucus revolt here. Uh, but these are the people that should know better and understand the political landscape. And for a party that was trying to make gains, and, and I've heard the same sorts of things that you've been talking about, that you know maybe there's a move afoot in some areas of the country to look at the Greens as an alternative. Uh, the, the message that they're sending by, by doing this to their leader basically says, we don't have our act together. No, that's right, and that's what people will see. If, if people look, and again, you know, people aren't, you know, they don't breathe politics like some of us do, but, you know, and, and rightly so, they've got other things in their mind. But if they look at a party and see in turmoil, why would they, why would they put their, or, you know, their, cast their ballot in favor of that party when they know that it's probably going to go nowhere? Well, especially after such a short period of time. And, and that, that was, I think, the thing that amazed me. I mean, it, it, and to switch, it, it, you know, just switch gears a bit. I mean, you know, that's what's happening a bit to the conservatives. I mean, not to that same extent, but you, you've got people questioning the leader and, and whether he's up to it. And, and, and again, when you get that, that gets out in the public, and they go, well, what's going on? You know, I mean, did their, their own members, their own party members don't like this person? And it all filters into the into the public eye, and they assess what they're seeing and hearing, and they make up their mind often on what's what they're hearing and seeing. Well, but the, in the conservative case, though, with Aaron O'Toole, I think it's actually a little more clear what's going on there. It was obvious, I think, from from the beginning, uh, that he wanted to move that party slightly more to the center, not to the center, but slightly more. Uh, and there's so much resistance about that because their party strength right now is in the Prairie Provinces in Alberta where uh, there's a very strong contingent right now that don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, they, they kind of like to go a little further right. Let's not forget that Maxime Bernier lost that leadership when he ran by like a percentage points. Uh, the, those people are there. and they, That's the way they want to see their new conservative party. O'Toole thinks the only way we're going to win Ontario, the only way we're going to win cities is to be a little bit more moderate. And there's get, he's getting pushback on that. And, and that that will be the death knell for the party, because he's absolutely right. People in Ontario don't want that ultra right or, or very much right kind of party. They, they 
shown time and time again. It might, it might be, uh, you know, the party that they're looking for, and I'm not even, I'm not even sure then, but it might be the party they're looking for out west. But it's certainly not the party they're looking for in Ontario. And if that's, you know, and there's a whole bunch of votes, as we know, in Ontario. And if you don't get Ontario, then you're, you're picking up some of the crumbs. Well, I, and I know people around the country don't like to hear this, but let's face it, with most federal elections, they're won and lost in Ontario and Quebec, because that's where the most seats are. That, uh, and a lot of the time, and I know this really ticks people off in Manitoba and Alberta and Saskatchewan and B.C., a lot of the time the, the election's been decided before they, they get to the Manitoba border, just because of the number of seats. And, and you know, the GTA, Southern Ontario... Uh, the, the large urban areas in Ontario, uh, the Conservatives do not do well. They have not done well there for a long, long time, federally anyway. And, and that's their big challenge. And, you know, when, when you get a, a convention that says, well, we don't necessarily believe that climate change, you know, is, is something that we have to make a priority and a few other things that they've gotten into now. Uh, there's some talk about opening up uh, the, the, the abortion debate again. Uh, we know that that seems to turn people off in large urban areas. And I think Mr. O'Toole understands that, but I, 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 I guess him trying to make any changes with the Conservative Party right now is trying to turn a, a, a you know a, a, an ocean liner around in, in in sixteen seconds. You just can't do it. No, and I, I, I again, you know, Arnold Tool has got the right idea, uh, but if he doesn't have the support of his of his membership, his his and his caucus, well, it, it's going to go nowhere. I, he's he's got the right idea. But he needs he needs everybody rolling in the same direction, and I don't think he has that right now. And that that's not going to and again that that's that spells that spells doom for the party if they don't come around the next election. I know there's a lot of people who are tired of the Liberal Party, are tired of Justin Trudeau, but they look around and they look at the alternative, and they see well you know. Maybe we can stomach him in the party for another term, because what I'm seeing right now, I don't like. Uh, when there's blood in the water, um, the sharks react. Uh, are, are people in that party understanding what's going on here and saying, uh, we're not so sure this guy's going to be around very long? I mean, is there some, some movement in the, in the back rooms here to say, let's look for alternatives? Well, what's the alternative? Okay, if they, get, if they get rid of Aaron O'Toole... Who are they, who are they going to get? I mean, who's the next in line? That you know, when when you've seen you know what's happened in the last couple of elections, who's going to be the person who's going to step up? Is it going to be some kind of you know very very conservative, very right wing uh, member of the caucus or somebody from the outside who's very who fits the bill? But again, you're looking at the same problem. If you know what's that old expression? You keep doing you know the, the same thing over over again. You, you Definition of insanity. Outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they're looking at. If they if they don't come to grips what we're re, with reality and what's happening, and what you need to do to get power, then it's going to be the same thing over and over again. I, I've heard rumblings, and another source of mine who has some pretty good connections at Queen's Park uh, told me that, uh, that even Doug Ford is kind of thinking about it, musing about it, not making any overt moves to do anything about that, but if O'Toole should fall, he'd consider this. Uh, and I 
I'm not going to suggest whether that's a good or bad move because we don't even know, you know, when the federal election is going to be and, and what the result of that is going to be. But I can tell you one thing about history, and I know you've reported on this for years. Uh, premiers don't make good party leaders when they move up to federal politics, yep, and they, they rarely become prime minister. They very rarely become prime minister. I mean, you know, look at Ralph Klein, how popular he was in Alberta. And there's no way Ralph Klein would have ever been elected in a, as a federal leader. And you notice Bill Davis never threw his hat in. Nope. And was wise not to. It, it doesn't work very often and almost, I would say, you know, it's almost 100%. And I, I, don't, I, I don't give any merit to, to uh, Doug Ford uh, thinking. I don't even believe he's thinking about it, quite frankly. I mean, he's got... He's got his uh, plate full right now, just trying to, to you know, to win a, another election, with, with you know, with some of the, with some of the problems uh, that he has to contend with. So I, I don't, I don't buy that. It's it's Aaron O'Toole's baby right now, and and he's got he's got to bring it up, and he has to convince the rest of the the country that he's the person to take the job. And God knows, maybe he will. I mean, I would, I wouldn't, I'd never say never. Because you know, I, I've done that in the past in war. I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I we don't know, but and and the whole thing here is I was talking to Susan Delacour from the Star the other day about this too. Uh, the Liberals are doing all right in the polling right now. They're still ahead in in, in most areas, especially in in the, you know the Maritimes and in Ontario, and they're doing okay in Quebec. I mean, they're still trailing, but that's because of the strength of the bloc. Uh, but they're not in majority government territory, so I mean, why would there be an election right now anyway? You could end up in the exact same situation we we're in now. Well, you could. It could be the you know a uh, conservative's reduct with under Harper. You know, it might, might assume a couple minority governments. But the point is that uh, who knows at this point? I think that Trudeau wants to desperately. I know he does desperately win a majority government. And I think that will be, he'll be, his swan song will come sometime later on. I don't think he'd, he would run again after that. You know, he just wants to get that under his belt and say, you know, I, I had, you know, two uh, majority governments and a minority government, and I've done my bit, and, and, and I'm saying goodbye and let somebody else take the reins. But whether they do or not, I mean, I don't, it's, it's, it's so up in the air right now, Bill, about what people want. And you know, and the kind of the kind of government they want, because they again, they're they're looking at their own lives and saying, you know, you know, am I going to have a job in so many years? And am I making enough money? Can I get by a house? And their their concentration is so elsewhere right now that, as you know, the last couple weeks an election is won, and people will finally just sit down and. And take stock of what's happening, and and say, yeah, I'm going to go with, you know, that party or this party. But right now, it's 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 would not. I don't. If anybody calls an election right now, in in, in like in, in Ontario or even a federal election, it they're out of their mind because people just aren't there. Exactly. Of course, the other side of, of your point there is it's awfully hard to connect with those voters right now if you're putting up fires in your own home, and that seems to be the case with these guys. Uh, Badger, we'll have to leave it here for now. We're just about out of time on this one. Thanks so much. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye.
Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A number of years ago, when the provincial government enacted the uh, the green belts uh, uh, across the southern part of the province here, uh, the intent was this is supposed to be sacrosanct. It's to preserve land, wetlands, farmlands, a number of things that are, are natural that uh, were being, well, racked simply by an awful lot of the work that was going on, uh, construction, etc., etc. Uh, and it worked and seemed to work for quite some time. As a matter of fact, there was some talk about expansion. Uh, then you may remember, as the uh, election campaign was gearing up for the last provincial election, Doug Ford, candidate Doug Ford, uh, started talking about perhaps uh, you know building houses into the green belt. You know, there's lots of land there, and we need lots of land. And he backed off of that. But uh, since he's taken power and become premier of the province, uh, they have been well busy, shall we say, uh, with something called ministers' zoning orders, which basically says that they can just steamroll over everything, planning, local planning, and everything else. And they've done this a number of times. Well, yesterday, because of some of the heat that they've been taking, uh, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, made an announcement that said they're going to add 6,000 acres to Ontario's Greenbelt. Here's the minister. Our government made a commitment to grow and enhance protections in the Greenbelt, and today we are delivering on that promise. I am beyond excited to announce that we are adding 360 hectares of green space to the Lake Simcoe Region Conservation Authority. To put it into perspective, 360 hectares is the equivalent of 889 football fields or slightly more than 77 sky domes. This is incredible news for not only the local community here in Georgina, but for the overall health and enhanced protections of Ontario's natural environment. Growing and enhancing the Greenbelt is a priority for the Ford government. We understand that there needs to be a balance as we build much needed communities while protecting the environment. That is why I committed to add at least two acres of land for every acre where I have or where I will issue an MZO. I make this promise to the people of Ontario. So that was the announcement, and that's, uh, well, obviously from the government, so they've got their own little spin going on there. But uh, after some great investigative work uh, by uh, Steve Bust and uh, Noor Javid uh, in the Toronto Star, uh, there was an article that, well, puts some details in place here and this is all about perspective are you saying that the devil's in the details well uh we're going to discuss this too because there's another side of this that i think an awful lot of people are going to find disturbing steve Buse, of course is an award-winning journalist uh with the Hamilton spectator of course with the tour star group uh he's one of the co-authors of this piece and he joins us on the bill kelly show to talk about this steve great to talk with you again thanks for joining us today Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Uh, great piece uh, by you and Dora about this. Uh, we, we've been having some discussions about Greenbelt and some of the concerns about this uh, for months on this program. Uh, we had the former chair of the Greenbelt Committee, David Crabby, who resigned, of course, uh, because of some of the Ford policies. On, and there's a, a great deal of consternation. Uh, and, and as uh, you guys seem to hint at in the piece today, uh, the announcement uh, that Minister Clark seemed to make here seemed to be in response to an awful lot of the pushback that they're getting. Well, coincidentally or not, uh, the announcement yesterday also came two days after uh, Noor and I published a large investigative piece about uh, minister zoning orders or or MZOs in general, showing that uh, more and more frequently the government is using these uh, sort of unappealable um, orders uh, to benefit private developers, and most of those private developers have connections to the uh, Ontario PC party as well as to, you know, the leaders of the municipalities where these MZOs are going to be uh, or have been enacted. So uh, there seems to be 
you know, as you mentioned, more to the story about what's going on here and, and uh, you know, whether this was a planned announcement or whether it was in response to our piece, uh, you know, I certainly don't know the answer to that. Well, uh, you, you certainly ruffle some feathers with this because the stats are here and they don't lie. Uh, and now these uh, ministerial zoning orders are not new, as, as you p- point out in the piece. Uh, the, you know, the previous government, the Liberal government, who were in power for 15 years, uh, used them occasionally. Uh, and by that, I mean occasionally. I think they only used, what, 15 or 16 times in 15 years, so it wasn't very often. Uh, what are the numbers? Have you got them handy there about how many times the, this government's used them? So s- since uh, April of 2019, so roughly, you know, just over two years, uh, the Ford government has enacted 45 MZOs. 44 of them are permanent ones. One was a temporary one. So let's say 44 permanent MZOs in the past two years. Uh, 33 of them alone last year. Uh, that's more than twice as many as the, uh, as you mentioned, the, the previous liberal liberal government used in 15 years. Um, and so, the, uh, you know, these things, there are, you know, it's, it's important to point out that there are some, you know, valid reasons for MZOs. Uh, mm-hmm. They are used to help municipalities. So, for instance, in Hamilton, uh, there was an MZO enacted to add spaces to first place, uh, the seniors' residence that's downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can be used on uh, provincially owned lands to uh, push through some projects. Uh, non-profit organizations have been issued MZOs to help them build, say, long-term care homes or seniors' residences. So there are some, you know, some valid and, and very worthwhile reasons for doing this. Um, but as we pointed out, uh, 16 of the last 18 MZOs enacted since October have gone to private developers. And these private developers, in most cases, as I said, have attachments to to the government, either through you know political donations or the use of uh, lobbyists who are former uh, PC officials, um, so we're seeing this push more towards helping private sector people or companies uh, get their projects moved to the head of the line, and, and that's really the issue because you know as these things get enacted, these MZOs, um, they override any local or regional uh, planning. Uh, policies or, or regulations, and they can't be appealed. So if the government says uh, it's going to go ahead, uh, there's nothing anyone can do about it. Uh, this is, and by the way, let's well, I'll talk about a couple of them. I mentioned on my commentary at 10 this morning about one of them being Highway 413, the proposed Highway 413, uh, where this may actually come into play once again. Uh, and and every one of the impacted municipalities, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in, in that it's, are going to be on the line there, uh, or have opposed this. They said to the government, please don't build this thing, yet they're going to go ahead with this anyway. And the other one, of course, is, as you referenced in the piece, the Bradford Bypass, uh, the north part of uh, the 400. Uh, which is going to have, is, again, in the Greenbelt, uh, it's going to be built partially anyway over the Holland Marsh. Now, anybody, Steve, that's driven up Highway 400 and, and goes just past Highway 9 to the Holland Marsh, it's one of the most incredible scenes you'll ever see. Probably some of the most fertile land in North America for growing, and as far as the eye can see. And you figured that was going to be sacrosanct, but I guess, you know, not so much now. Yeah, so, you, you know, you've touched on a couple of interesting issues because we also did a, a large investigative piece uh, on April 3rd about the Highway 413. And again, same issue that uh, we showed that, you know, a, a number of major land developers own, uh, you know, huge numbers of acreage uh, along the uh, the route of the proposed Highway 413. And again, these are the same 
developers that have connections to the PC party. And, um, you know, I think the issue that people have here is that even if some of these MZOs aren't on the green belt per se, um, what they're doing is they're uh, pushing out projects that just create more sprawl. And so if you allow projects in this sort of scattershot way, what ends up happening is that over time, things get built out to meet up with those places. So, you know, the, the, the squares on the checkerboard end up getting filled, whether you like it or not, because that's just the way things operate. There's no sense having, you know, large communities in the middle of nowhere with nothing around them. So, you know, things get built out to join them up to the other things. And, and that's the concern that I think a lot of, uh, you know, people with an environmental bent have about this. Well, exactly. I mean, we've talked about urban sprawl, and, and I think people have a grasp of that right now and the concern and the cost to it. I mean, there's the environmental cost, but as, as you've mentioned in some of your previous pieces, uh, there's a financial cost to this, too, because as those areas get built up, they have to be serviced. Uh, they have to have police protection, fire protection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that goes right onto the property tax base. I mean, the, the people that, you know, initiated these orders and built this stuff, they're long gone. I mean, it's going to be up to the people that live in that area to pay for it after that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, so yesterday's announcement, I guess, you know, I, I suppose it, it's it's a good thing that they're adding, uh, you know, some land back to the green belt. Um, but again, as, as critics uh, pointed out with the announcement, you know, the land that's, that's going to be, you know, added and protected uh, in the green belt uh, as a result of these MZOs that have been enacted, um, is really land that nobody was going to develop anyways. And so it's, it's a little bit, you know, as these people point out, it's a little bit cynical to be, you know, pointing towards this when, you know, the pieces of land that you're, that you're going to be protecting here were never going to be developed anyways. And as others have pointed out, the real issue is the MZOs themselves. You know, that's the land that should be protected. And, you know, the government didn't say anything about a moratorium on any further MZOs. Uh, you know, nor did it say uh, or will say how many MZOs are currently pending. Um, we've asked that. They haven't answered. And, uh, you know, there was no mechanism announced yesterday for, um, you know, how are we going to know which pieces of land are, are, are protected now? I mean, they made the announcement yesterday of, you know, 890 acres uh, of the North Gwillimbury Forest. Um, you know, but that's, you know, still another 5,100 acres to come just to cover the MZOs that they've already done. How are they going to announce that? Which parcels? You know, is there going to be some mechanism so that people know what's being done here? But that seems to be the the bargain that they're putting forth here, isn't it, Steve? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to make incursions into uh, prime farmland and wetlands and, and environmentally sensitive areas, but we're going to give back. It's it's stuff that nobody wants, but but the, you know, just so the number looks the same. You know, we could say, hey, we haven't really you know shrunk the green belt, but it's where the green belt is that matters, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and, and uh, you're absolutely right. It's it, you know, as I said, it's it's. Is it a good thing that land gets protected? Sure, I, I, I yeah. suppose it is. Um, it's just you know, as some people point out, you know, not every acre is is worth the same, and so um, you know, where the the land is being protected is as important as how much of it is being protected. 
we had a, there are examples like this. Anybody who's talked to, uh, you know, and lived anywhere near the green button, we had a, a, one in Hamilton years ago. I know when the green button was initiated. One of the areas that's protected, and Steve, you'd know the area. It's on Highway 20. It's Speedway Park, an old racetrack used to be there. Uh, and it's a great big area and a number of acres. And it's, you know, they, it has to be protected. And I talked to agricultural people and they say, all you can grow there is rocks. I don't know why they're doing that. There are other sensitive areas that could have been included. So that's, that's a debate that's going to happen. We get that. But this seems to be flagrant that they're going into prime land right now and say yeah but we're going to give you this instead that's like saying you know i'm going to steal your your maserati but you know what I, i'm going to give you a 64 ford what's the problem here <laughs> well, i guess it depends on which 60 even if it was a 64 Mustang. Oh, <laughs> but so, no no you're absolutely right and and that's the issue here and and again um you know the bigger issue is that you know these MZOs uh, are, are going to be continuing. There's no indication that the government is going to stop using them. In fact, uh, Doug Ford earlier this year was adamant that they are going to continue using MZOs. They're doing this for the people of Ontario. Uh, they think that this is in everyone's uh, best interest. Um, but again, as we pointed out, you know Ontario is a pretty large province. Uh, and yet when you look at the map of where the MZOs have been enacted, uh, you know, they're essentially all around the GTA, you know, the, the wealthiest part of the province uh, where growth is going to be the greatest and where land values are the most expensive. And, you know, um, not coincidentally, um, you know, these MZOs, you know, they, they could be for, uh, say, a, a development that's going to add 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 housing units. So... Um, you know, if, if you're the owner of that property and you get the MZO that allows you to jump the line by years and build your 2,000 or 3,000 unit uh, housing development, you know, you, you've just won Willy Wonka's golden ticket. And, uh, and there's nothing that anyone can do to stop it. Including local councils, which I think is part of the frustration. One of the more famous applications, or maybe infamous, uh, was, uh, I guess, late last year when they tried to put that, one of the, that monster warehouse that they were going to build in Pickering on environmentally sensitive land. And, and again, Pickering Council, the mayor was on site at first, but eventually, because of public pressure, he said no. Uh, and, you know, Amazon finally said, okay, we'll, we'll figure something else out. But that's yet to be resolved. But it just shows you how impotent the council is in situations like that. And it's got to be frustrating for everybody to think, hey, we elected these people so that we can control planning and growth in our city unless the province wants to do something else. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and even with the one that you've mentioned at Pickering in, in the Duffins Creek uh, watershed there, um, they were successful in revoking or, or at least in appealing to the province and the province did agree to revoke but they only revoked part of the MZO so there, there is still a portion of the land around there that uh, can go ahead under the under the MZO they did revoke the most controversial part uh, related to the creek um, but again that it still shows you how difficult it is I mean all of the power rests with uh, you know, the Munis uh, Municipal Affairs and Housing uh, Ministry in terms of, of what happens. Uh, I mean, uh, there was a case in, in Stratford, again, where it was probably the only other one where where uh, residents were successful in fighting it. This was the one that was going to be a, uh, a uh, float glass uh, mm -hmm. factory built by a Chinese uh, company that uh, eventually caused so much consternation that uh, that the province finally agreed to, to revoke that MZO.
Uh, great work by uh, by you and Noor on this. Uh, not just this piece, but as you say, the ones you've written before this too. That gives some context, I think, for people. Uh, and it's on the Toronto Star website, by the way, uh, if you want to have a look at it for yourself. Steve, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again, and uh, stay well and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. Take care, Steve Buse, of course, award-winning journalist. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.